In today's episode, you get to hear me talking to Esther O'Reilly. Esther's got one of the best brains on the block. She is very intelligent, very switched on, and very engaged with current conversation. And that's one of the reasons why I thought it'd be fantastic to get her onto When Belief Dies, to chat through um, a bit of her work, a lot of her thoughts. And uh, yeah, there's a really interesting part where she pushes back on some of my reflections on New Testament authenticity. And it's a really helpful way for us as the listener to understand how Christians view this sort of stuff and what it means to them and how they interact and engage with the sorts of things that I say. Um, anyway, it's a really, really good conversation and I hope it's really enlightening. And I'd encourage you as a listener, whatever your belief systems, to really interact with how Esther says and thinks that people should interact or try on Christianity, as well as the resources that she mentions. I know that it's really hard for people sometimes to want to pursue and understand why a Christian believes what they believe, because often we think we know, right? We've either been there or we've looked at this for long enough that we have the answers. And sometimes that's just not true. Sometimes we need to go away and reevaluate why someone is saying that they believe. And with that new information, try and work out whether anything in our own heart has changed. Anyway, Esther's a legend. This conversation is great in my opinion. I hope you enjoy it. Cheers. Welcome to When Belief Dies, a podcast honestly reflecting on faith, religion, and life. This podcast is all about listening. We want people to share their reasons for faith or their reasons for non-belief so that we can better understand what has or has not convinced somebody of the claims that different religions profess. This is a journey, it's not a destination, and I'm really excited to have you listening with us each week as we delve into different viewpoints from different parts of the world to try and uncover the truth. Enjoy the episode. Hello. And welcome to another episode of When Belief Dies. My name's Sam, and today I'm joined by Esther O'Reilly. Esther, it's great to have you on the podcast. It's great to be here. Thank you, Sam. So I've been, um, yeah, I've, I've been enjoying you on things like Unbelievable and Speak Life and various other kind of um, podcasts and YouTube things that have been on the internet for a while now. And um, I've just found that your voice is very powerful and the things you have to say are often quite timely. And I just thought it'd be fantastic to get you onto the show to talk about belief and faith and what those things mean and, 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 and how you interact with them, if that's, if that's okay with you. Yeah, it's more than okay. I'm delighted to have the opportunity. So I guess kind of I'm 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 very much aware that um you you kind of like to keep yourself to yourself you don't want people to necessarily know lots and lots about you which is fantastic but I wondered would you be willing to kind of um give us a little bit of an idea of kind of of how you would maybe kind of view faith in your life and and as much of your life as you would are willing to obviously share Sure so I grew up in a Christian home um and in terms of where I place myself denominationally I would say that I'm in a, a the sort of broadly liturgical Protestant stream. So um, I grew up in the Anglican Church, um, currently attend an ACC parish. And uh, so I describe myself as quite ecumenical in outlook, um, comfortably Protestant, but I, I definitely sympathize with elements of the Catholic tradition. And um, faith has just been a part of my life as long as I can remember. But I, I think that maybe 
it, maybe it means something a little bit different for me than it may have meant for others. Um, and I think maybe the way that I was taught to think about it has helped me to hold on to it uh, in a way that that maybe other people didn't have when they were growing up. And so I feel blessed really in that way. Okay, that's really interesting. And I think this is this has been I'm definitely finding the more that I speak to people, the more people that are um, kind of clinging in uh, onto faith. Not that it's, I'm not saying like it's a rock and you're trying to weather the storm or anything, but the more people that are um, are able to retain a faith seem to be those that have um, almost held it the lightest to start with. I find that a lot of times, like I, I, I jumped, you know, feet first into into my belief in terms of kind of believing the this is what God is, this is who he is, this is how I worship him, this is, you know, all these things are laid out for me, this this is what Christianity means. And I think sometimes, and especially these days, I'm getting to talk to people and I find that, not that they never had a strong faith or they haven't got a good grasp of who God is, but actually their faith is moldable and shapeable. Would you say that kind of about your own faith, Esther? So the question you're asking is, do I, do I feel like so what what is what is the question exactly? I just want to be sure that I yeah answer so, this. Um, so if something was to come up in your life and it would make you kind of question how you view or interact with God, um, mm. for for some people that's kind of almost like a deal broken with them and God, and they kind of walk away from their belief system in 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 God. Um, but for other people, it seems to be that they're able to retain a faith, and the faith changes with with the reality of life that's around them. How would you kind of describe your faith, um, given kind of life events or situations or, yeah? Oh sure. Well, I mean, obviously, that my faith has grown with me. Um, certainly, when I was when I was a little kid, I was, you know, quite quite innocent as kids are in many ways, and I trusted in God with that that simple, childlike, direct faith. Um, but then, as you get older, you see, you, you know, you deal with difficult things, um, things that don't make a whole lot of sense, very you know, dark, sad things. Um, so then that's the real test of faith. Uh, and uh, C.S. Lewis once described faith as uh, not not believing in spite of that which your best reason tells you is false, but it's belief that you're able to hold on to in spite of shifting moods. Um, I think that's a really helpful way to think about faith. That's how I've tried to think about it myself. Um, even when I don't necessarily have fast answers to every single question or it can't necessarily uh, resolve every single doubt that might arise i find that it's it's enough it's durable enough that um, it can grow and mature with me through the the book of common prayer refers to the chances and changes of this mortal life you know so that's how i think about it That's amazing, and I guess I mean we've kind of spoken quite a, quite a lot offline, and um, I think it'd be good just to dive into some of the kind of the broader topics that we had, which obviously very much link into this. But um, feel free to drag in anything else you want to speak about or or, or, or bring up by by all means. Um, so I think kind of it'd be really interesting to talk about belief because uh, something that I have almost come to terms with, but I'm 
very much aware that I might be wrong in this, is this idea that we can't necessarily control what does or does not convince us to be true. Um, we can often kind of um, sway decision by researching or focusing in or kind of uh, investigating a certain thing. But actually, that thing which says, no, this is now what you believe and this isn't what you believe, seems to be something that isn't actually necessarily always within our control. At least it's not as much as we think it is. And I wonder if you've got any kind of thoughts and reflections on that. Yeah, I think that's correct in in the sort of simple sense that, like you're saying, it's not as if we sit down and go, right, okay, I'm going to choose to believe something starting now and then it's just you know you can flick the switch on and it happens um i think it, i think that's correct psychologically that that doesn't happen but you just said it yourself we can control what we spend our time looking into we can control um our relevance hierarchy what we pay attention to what we choose to spend time paying attention to um and we can endeavor not to be like the guy in that Simon and Garfunkel song, um, that a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest, right? Don't be that guy. Um, now, I mean, of course, everyone has certain amount of confirmation bias, but I'm not one of those people who says that confirmation bias is impossible to overcome. I think it can be overcome, but I think it takes uh, a concerted effort so the question that you always have to ask yourself is, if this were true, whatever this is, uh, would I want it to be true? Would I really want it to be true? And we might automatically say, well, yes, of course. Mm, would you really, though? And then, you know, you have to, you have to really have a think. Um, and so I think I would say, you know, yes and no. Yes, in, in, the, in the light switch sense, we can't control it. But... Um, we can choose to control factors that that might make it easier for us to believe in the end if the evidence really is objectively there if it is something we should be convinced of if we were being if we were fully informed and fully honest that's a really good answer i think it's i just i guess i think it's kind of a, a, a real challenge to almost know what those um what those true objective things are that we're that we're desiring. I mean, I definitely feel like humans have this um, this innate desire for us to have things outside of ourselves which are true and whole and direct our lives. Like we are, um, I've mentioned this quite a few times, and I know you've listened to a few podcasts and things. But this idea of like um, being meaning-seeking creatures that we are um, consistently looking for purpose and value and reason outside of ourselves in our family, in our work, in our jobs, and everything. We can't help but but do that. And then obviously Christians turn around and point to that, or religious people point to that and go, "Well, that is." a God-given innate desire within you to find that which is outside of yourself, i.e. potentially mm -hmm. God. And, um, you know, kind of naturalists, I'm sure, would turn around and say, well, actually, no, that is just how we can best live within this world. And that's the best means for us to kind of propagate our genes almost or, you know, whatever um, sort of naturalist language gets dropped in there. I wonder, do you kind of have any 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 thoughts and reflections on that? I do, yeah. And um, it's really interesting listening to your podcast and, and hearing you say some things that I've similar heard similarly expressed elsewhere um, about this sort of dilemma that that you have, like many people have, like, well, um, I certainly believe that certain things have value. I believe that um, my children are inherently valuable. I believe people in general are inherently valuable. Um, I believe human rights exist. I believe all of these things exist. I certainly act as if, to use the sort of Jordan Peterson phrase, but then, you know, I'll read sapiens um and there's you all know harari 
who's telling me, just so you know, human rights don't actually exist. They're just an enormously useful fiction, and everything would go to hell if we didn't walk around acting as, as if they existed. But remember, objectively, they don't exist. Well, that's not terribly comforting. Um, so I think that there's a problem here with how we've come to understand the word objective. Now, I have a background in mathematics, um, and so I often think about numbers in, in this context because it seems to me again and again when people will talk about, but what, what's objectively true though? What can we prove to be, to be true in objective sense? It winds up reducing to material things. You know, like what can we, what can we measure with scientific instruments? Um, what can we observe through the telescope? Well, okay, we've gone to the moon. So we know objectively the moon exists, that kind of thing. But I, I think it's an extraordinary error to, to limit the scope of what objectively exists to the realm of the material. Um, and I'm really curious to know, I wonder if Harari would also say that numbers don't objectively exist. Uh, they're just useful fictions. I mean, you, you know, <laughs> I, I'm not quite sure what to say at that point. I think our spade is, is sort of turned. Um, and so I, I think, I think that human rights actually, if anything, like numbers, are the most objective realities that there are. Um, and maybe even in some sense, we could say more objective than that which could be measured scientifically. And that might get into a, like a whole sort of philosophical rabbit trail because I also have a background in philosophy, but I don't want to um, go herring off there. But um, that's, I sort of shake my head when I, when I hear, I'll even hear Tom Holland say when he talks about losing his faith in liberalism, he'll go, well, I certainly believe in human rights, but I don't think they objectively exist. And I want to say, no, no, you're getting, you've got this, let me help you. You've got this wrong notion of objectivity, you know, but I, anyway, that's, I'll, uh, I'll stop myself before, before I, before I go on. No, I think, I think this is, this is really good. This is really interesting because yeah. I mean, I, I I can't for some reason in my head I can't help but fall back into that default position. Like even even now I'm going well no because it isn't objective if it's not like something that's without that's outside myself. Like you know potentially you could you know so uh, you know, someone's saying that um, if there's no one on the earth to count these two rocks are they still is there still objectively two rocks and arguably yes there are still objectively two rocks but it's that it's that ah but is okay but is gone. the number two outside of yourself? Yes and no. It's part of everything. Well, we use the number when we're dealing with physical stuff, um, but the number itself is not inside of us, right? I mean, now I'm sounding, I'm sounding all, all Plato. You know, I mean, it's I'm sounding like the professor in Narnia. What do they teach them in these schools? You know? <laughs> it's good. Yeah. Um, but I mean, what you said just now was if it's objective, it has to be outside of myself. I agree. I, I think that that's true, but I do think these things are outside of ourselves. Okay. I kind of want you to go further. I kind of want you to, to push into that more if, you, if, you're, if you're willing to. Okay. Well, so, I mean, what do you want me to, there's, there's, there's so many directions that, that you could go with that. I guess if we could, so just kind of 
thinking about the listeners, um, probably a good place to start. So um, you've got Christians and non-Christians listening to this, grappling with the concepts that I very much talk about on the podcast, like meaning, purpose, value, all those sorts of things. And one of the big loops that this whole thing revolves around is this idea of, of objective value, objective meaning. Um, and lots of people have different ideas of what those things mean, but I guess kind of like bringing it back to how we make sense of the world through objectivity and you know, can kind of pulling in how that how that sits within maybe a religious framework and how that makes more sense potentially within a religious framework than dropping all religion, having a naturalistic objective sense of stuff. Sure. So I think I think one problem that you have when you're inside the I forget where I first where this phrase first came from, but the, the iron box of naturalism. Um, is it's a it's a closed loop, right? It's it's sort of stuck, it's sort of trapped within itself. Um, Actually, ironically, I think it's the naturalist frame that doesn't allow for um, something outside of the box or outside of the bubble to to grant the the objectivity, um, because otherwise, it's it's just games that we're playing with ourselves. It's it's just um, a sort of private make believe in a way, um, and so I think that. I think that in order to have an ultimately grounded objectivity, you need an, an open system, not not a closed system. Okay. Do you, so yeah, I, I, obviously I'm still very much on this journey trying to understand all this sort of stuff. So forgive me if these questions are dumb, but I'm going to push in and see how I do. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> would you would you say then that you that you, that you need to have objective truths like we so you know i would push back and obviously you kind of you kind of touched on this but i guess to push further into it is this idea that um i think my children have have value and meaning um but objectively they they you know, I, I could also see how they could not if naturalism is true um so i guess what how how do you know whether or not they do have objective meaning without almost having to kind of infer a god or something other than that which we can kind of interact with well, I think we have to distinguish between epistemology and ontology, right? So, um, so epistemology is, is is theory of knowledge, um, how we know or intuit things. But then ontology is uh, to what do we trace its source? So, I think that when it comes to human rights, uh, human exceptionalism, if you will, um, I think that it's it's absolutely possible to intuit the truth of something. Uh, even if we haven't taken the step to trace it all the way back to to the thing that ultimately would need to to ground it in order for it to all hang together. Um, so I, th I think that's where a lot of people are intuitively. I think that's how a lot of people come, for example, um, to to make a flip, if, say, if they flip from being pro-choice to being pro-life in the abortion debate. Um, you know, Often it'll just be like, well, I just, I saw a picture of a baby who had been aborted and I just knew, I just knew it was wrong. That it, that's a baby, it's wrong. I didn't have to think about it. It's, or, you know, you see a picture of a slave or a picture of a Holocaust victim, you know? Um, and, and somebody could even come to that point and not yet be a Christian um, or a theist, but it's like, this, this, is, this is something they know this this is an absolute that they have um so then if a person like that came to me i wouldn't say to them oh well but you're not a christian yet so you don't really have any good reason to to think that i would say 
great, it, keep going. <laughs> you know, you're you're on the right track. You've intuited something true, um, and I I happen to think that that intuition was placed in you by God. But I think it's it's a moral sense. It's like taste buds, and I I think Jonathan Haidt uses this in the Righteous Mind, and I don't think it's a bad analogy. You know, you can it tastes good. You can taste when something is sweet, when something is sour. Um, and once again, I think that that is, it can be, it can work just as objectively as our taste buds are, are working, you know? Yeah, so this is really good. Um, so uh, Jonathan um, Haidt, or however you say his surname, I keep calling him Hadith, but that is not his surname. I think um, it's Haidt, yeah. Haidt, yeah. yeah. Okay, um, so in, in the in the Righteous Mind, um, and forgive me because I've only read sections of the book, so if I'm completely blaspheming it, apologies but okay, um, i think i've only read sections too i don't remember okay. if i read the whole thing <laughs> <laughs> we can both try and understand what he's saying together um no so basically like what 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 i keep going back to in in works like jonathan's is um is this idea that even though these things feel like they are um, objective and 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 we can push further into those things we we can't we still can't know i'm doing a really bad job of this but we still can't know um that they are actually linked to something so you talked about i mean this is a really bad example but the aborted fetus it's like so in in, in your face it's um it's, it's it's a good example for that reason um but we might look at that and go this is wrong and it might be that actually every single human on the planet agrees that, that this is wrong and we all agree that it's that it's incorrect but that doesn't actually mean it is in the in the bigger picture incorrect. It just means that as as a species we have a agreement upon something. So kind of uh, Sam Harris touches a little bit on this with this his idea of well being. This idea that um, I, mean, I know you know Sam Harris's work well, but um, for the for the for the for the listener, it's this idea that kind of we we want human well being, human flourishing, because the opposite kind of the the idea of pain and suffering. Um, means that there isn't the idea that we can flourish and be better and we know that in that state we can actually do more and it helps ourselves more and we can go further with it and that's the reason we value those things if pain and suffering actually brought us in the bigger picture more of the things that we desire as humans and we probably would follow that path but it doesn't it's the flourishing element so we, th we therefore say flourishing is good and suffering is bad but they're almost objective using the term good and bad in and of itself, I think actually causes quite a lot of problems. We could say better and worse, I feel like would be more helpful in these sorts of conversations because good and bad, or, or you almost give yourself like two ends of the spectrum. And you've got to kind of stick within those realms, but I think there are better and worse. And I mean, Sam talks about this in the book, this idea of different peaks of almost human flourishing and, 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 and well-being, where we might be on one peak where we go, you know, a, a, aborting a child is incorrect for these reasons. And we might all, you know, like the whole, whole of humanity, they don't, but the whole of humanity might agree on this one thing. But actually there might be another peak we're completely unaware of because we haven't managed to trans to transverse the train to get there. Um, I don't know, maybe I'm just talking too much, but have you got any kind of thoughts on, on this sort of stuff? Oh, yeah. I mean, I could speak generally to the well-being thing. Um, I think I think Jordan Peterson... I nails this fairly decisively in, in his various interactions with Sam. And actually, it's in some ways I agree with Sam more than Jordan in, in some of their back and forths. And so it's really interesting for me watching their debates because I kept feeling like they were sort of taking turns, landing points, um, and it sort of wound up being a, a messy, confusing draw. Um, but yeah, I think I think that well-being as it's it's completely unhelpful when it comes to establishing any kind of a metric for morality. Certainly, um, I mean the whole point of Christianity. At Ed, this is what Tom Holland is illuminating so brilliantly in, in his book Dominion. Um, 
but at the the sort of molten heart of Christianity is the the hanging God, right? Uh, is is Christ on a tree, brutally crucified, suffering, humiliated, degraded, and yet from that comes the greatest possible good, the greatest possible love, um, the highest calling for humanity. Um, and so when it's, well, clearly so-and-so is better off because he's comfortable and happy and healthy and living his best life now, right? To sort of paraphrase the, the prosperity gospel um, catchphrase. Okay, but is, is he really, is he really better off in the ultimate sense? Is he really better off in the eternal sense? Or um, are, are the martyrs perhaps best off in the end, even, even if they're executed in some degrading way and, and died in suffering? Um, so I think Christianity really just takes that whole thing and flips it, flips it upside down. And that's why, it, uh, that's why it's so potent, I think. And, and that's why it endures where these other these other metrics just kind of fade away yeah that's, that's really well said uh, but i think again this this um <laughs> this this comes back to this idea of, of 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 the human narrative that grants us the ability to have cultures and societies like we do so so you know in, in my head i can't help but say um you know say humanity's been around for 200,000 years we think roughly it's been about that long i know there's the cognitive revolution happened at some point you know 70 80,000 years ago so say even since 70 80,000 years ago um the amount of, for instance, children that have died, you know, before a week old, and the amount of mothers and fathers that have had their hearts broken, um, before they even knew that Yahweh existed, I think this is this is this is part of it for me. Is is that almost why is there this horror and this suffering and this pain that people would naturally feel because they've tried to raise these children? They are giving love and care and meaning to these things so that they can. I mean, you could argue if you want to Richard Dawkins route to propagate their genes to just push things on. It's just a naturalistic, deterministic thing that we've stepped into. But that doesn't make the love any less real. It just means it's set within a certain framework. And we can come back to that. That's absolutely fine. But the, the point I'm trying to get across here is um, the idea that within the pain and suffering of the, 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 of the hanging God, the crucified Christ, um, life and purpose and meaning and value and freedom and the slaves saying they have dignity and women having eventually having rights again within society and and you know by the third century christians looking after those children that are being pushed down the sewage pipes and say no you you, you have meaning and value like I, I can understand why that sort of thing might arise because of the because of the history we have i just what i struggle to do is, is to place an actual god on that tree i mean i i, I honestly I, I would like to but for me it's the idea that why did it why did we have to have all i mean why do we have to have all this suffering that's that's another big question we can park and come back to but it's that you can see from the sheer volume of time and the amount of suffering that has taken us to get to where we are anyway um why we'd want to then try and find all these things within a sort of suffering framework because from that place where we already are we can see a hopeful way out and we can almost write ourselves into the narrative and therefore we can get to where we are today potentially i'm fully aware you're going to push back but that's how I'd kind of see it in my head. Right. Yeah. And I've heard, I've heard you articulate this question before. And I mean, the question you seem to be asking is why, um, so why did God choose this particular moment or point in time to reveal himself fully, um, sort of in the middle of the story in, in some sense? 
Is that kind of your your question? Kind of. It's. It, I, I guess for me, it would almost be, you know, why why has God decided to reveal Himself as the credits have started rolling? Um, just and I'd, I'd say that now, just from where I see humanity to be in the state that the world's in and climate change and stuff. Not that I think humanity is the you know the big final chapter, but um, if humanity is God's pinnacle or the place we've taken the planet, you know, you could you could easily see within the next five hundred years a complete global extinction based on based on the way we're, we're, we're treating things i'm not saying that will happen but if the whole human story is is the screenplay then god didn't come in the middle he came he came as the credit started to roll and then his coming you could argue was the thing that kind of fueled us to get worse and worse and worse and worse potentially but anyway yes basically yeah why did god decide to come when he came when there's been so much suffering before that yeah now i'm thinking of um thinking of a, a deleted song from the musical Fiddler on the Roof called uh, uh, When Messiah Comes. And it's, it's a bitter, bitter tune. Uh, the, the hook is, when Messiah comes, surely he will say, I apologize for being late. Um, and of course, the, the writers, the speakers in that song, the narrative voice, the Jews don't believe the Messiah has come at all. They're still waiting, right? They don't believe Jesus was it. Um, so if you want to read a great novel about this, by the way, I highly recommend The Chosen by Chaim Potok, um, powerful, powerful book. And anyway, I'm getting sidetracked. But anyway, um, so, you know, this is a very deep question. It's not a question that I'm, I'm going to pretend to, to solve for you, that we're going to solve the next uh, half hour or whatever. Um, I think Alistair McGrath gave the beginnings of a, a pretty good answer on his podcast with you when he was, he was talking about this biblical language of the, the fullness of time, that, um, that God had to sort of prepare humanity over over a span of years, beginning with the Jews um, and, and, and gradually preparing the ground, revealing himself. And then eventually here's Christ. Now here he is, the fullness of time. Now now run with it. Um, you get a glimpse in in the gospels when when Jesus is is being kind of a smart aleck with the leaders, which he, he liked to do. Um, and he's saying, well you know, <clears throat> Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And they're like, what? Who, who is this guy? Who does this guy think he is? Um, and so Jesus is there sort of emphasizing his timelessness, right? Um, he, he, he was, he is, he always will be. Uh, and so even though Abraham as a Jew uh, had no relationship with Christ, after his life was ended, Jesus seems to be saying there, he encountered me and he understood who I was and he, he rejoiced. Now I finally understand. Um, and so if we believe in God's timelessness and in the sort of the backwards causation, so to speak, of the crucifixion, that it, it's like the still point at the center of the turning world, to, to quote T.S. Eliot, then... Um, I think that may give us a, a new view on things that's that's not so stuck in, in a linear chronological uh, way of thinking about it, that in a sense, it defies time. It redefines time, you know, um, and and the grace can extend backwards as well as forwards, you know. I want to take a minute of your time to talk about supporting When Belief Dies. 
this will always be an advertisement-free podcast. And for that reason, I hope you will be willing to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcast app and check us out over on YouTube. Finally, I want to ask you to consider supporting the show financially. You can support the show on Patreon with a monthly gift or a one-off donation via PayPal. Everything that you give goes directly towards running and improving the blog and podcast. Take a look in the description for all the links and thank you for supporting the show. Right, let's get back to this week's episode. Yeah, I, I can I can see that. I'm also very aware that we didn't necessarily say that we're going to kind of go down go down these these paths, but it's just find it so fascinating. I also find how many references you have at the top of your tongue, to sorry, tip of your tongue, just exceptionally impressive. So so well. Yeah, done. I have all this. I have all this useless knowledge. I have to find somewhere <laughs> to put it. So thank you. It's not useless. It's fantastic. <laughs> oh, good. Thank you. Thank um, you. That's nice of you. <laughs> so I guess, I, I guess it. This is just being really brutal. I'm not trying to be rude to you at all in this in this Esther, but that sounds really nice. But how do I know it's true? Like how how can we how can we even get close to saying this is the truth? And I I, I kind of say that from a, from a point of the, the New Testament when we understand how it was formed and we understand when the Gospels were written and arguably you know written by people that didn't live in the same country as Jesus, didn't speak the same language as Jesus, that potentially didn't even know Jesus. We can infer and hope they did but we don't have we don't actually have evidence to, to say that they did um oh that's these... that's false we absolutely do you, you think we do okay yeah yeah a lot quite a lot actually i, yeah. I can give a few examples i mean that that's that's could be like a whole episode unto itself but it, it, i mean uh, yeah so i mean yeah I, I'm, I'm i'm really happy to go down to, to, to go down the road. I don't know as much as others, but I mean, you know, I'm going to be having uh, N.T. Wright on the podcast eventually. Bart Ehrman's already booked to come on. John Golden Gay's booked to come on. So I've got, I've got people that are going to be covering these topics, but um, I'd be really interested to hear your story on that for, for sure. Yeah, sure. So I think um, there's there's many ways that, that we could go about this um, and consider this, but yeah, I think that there's, there's a really a, an excellent, sturdy, cumulative case to be made. Um, for like not just for for a select event like Jesus crucifixion for example or Jesus existed um, or even just the resurrection I think you can make a case for the for the holistic reliability of of the gospel texts uh, as as reportage as as memoir um, and I think that I think that case can be built from from internal clues and external confirmations. Um, to, to say that, I mean, that actually every every single one of the things that you just said, I, I think isn't correct. I, I think that the writers were up close to the facts. Um, I think that it, in at least the case of uh, the case of Matthew and John, we have men who were disciples of Jesus, eyewitnesses. Um, and in the case of somebody like Luke, someone who wasn't himself an eyewitness, but uh, appears to have had access to people who were up close to the facts who knew his stuff, who took his job very, very seriously and wanted to create uh, an, as accurate an account as he could. Um, so, I mean, yeah, lots of places to jump off there. I can begin to unpack um, a few specifics on that, but um, that's that's something I'm, I'm very interested in. Yeah, I, 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 I love this stuff as well. Um, yeah, I think, oh gosh, I feel like we, I, feel, I won't say yes, but I also feel like we could run down 
that rabbit hole for a long way. But let's let's do it for a little bit. I think it's, I think it's good for the listener as well to to hear this. So, um, I I struggle to know that's to be true because of most scholarly accounts that I read or come into terms with would say, for instance, we, 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 don't, we do not know who wrote the Gospels. We can say that we think John wrote the Gospel, but actually the only book that we have that we know John wrote is the Revelation of John, because he says his name in that book, where he doesn't actually say his name in the Gospel of John. So we can, we can infer that he's the beloved disciple, but actually we've got no idea. Um, one of the things I struggle with with the Gospels is the fact that it seems to me very clear, especially in Luke, that there are kind of three or four different moments when Christ becomes Christ. Um, so Luke has lots of sources that he's putting into his gospel. They all do, if you kind of look at it. But essentially, Luke is um, saying, for instance, um, there's there's a, there's a really good example for the very beginning of Luke. I think chapter three um, being when the gospel actually originally started and chapters one and two being added on at a later date because of when Jesus gets raised from being baptized. Um, you know, God basically says, you know, you are my 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 beloved in 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 and basically essentially that is when um luke originally according to the ancient manuscripts basically that's when luke said that jesus became divine and we know that from early church fathers who quote a version of luke that is older than the, the greek manuscripts that we have um and i'll i'll, I'll link a, a podcast episode i did on this recently for bart ehrman in the show notes but there's really good evidence to then suggest that the beginning of Luke was added on because it didn't fit in with the general narrative that the scribes at the time wanted to adhere to. And there's just so many variations and so many possible ways of reading these texts that you can't help but go, how do we know that this is true? I mean, even the first gospel, Mark, compared to the last gospel, John, the Christology goes from a very low Christology to a very high Christology when Jesus is literally telling people that he is God in the Gospel of John, whereas in Mark, it's very much more focused on the kingdom of God is coming now, repent, um, or, or, you, or you won't be entering, essentially. And I, I just find that to start with, the Gospels all say very different things and, and their portrayal of Christ is very different. But on top of that, we, we just cannot know that Luke did actually write the books we think he wrote. And even the book of Acts is contrary in some cases to what Paul says in his letters and there's so many things that don't quite add up that you could see how people could be trying to stitch things together but it doesn't feel like someone's written like a clear a, a clear account that's the best I'm going to be able to do I'm afraid yeah yeah and I mean yeah there's there's no way that that, that I can um, fully address every one of those things in, in in the short span of time here but I you know I certainly there's lots of resources I would I would point people to um I mean, I think I, I would say that I'm not really, I'm really not persuaded by the sort of Eohippus model of the Gospels, right? You know, you have, you have the little horse and it grows and it becomes a big horse in John, right? When you, you know, we have super high Christology. Um, I just don't fully buy that. Um, I mean, I, I think that you, I think you have, um, I think you, you actually have some, some bits in the synoptics where there's, there's hints of, a higher Christology and my friend Jonathan McClatchy, uh, who, who'd be a good guest, has done quite a lot of in-depth research on that. Um, but I think also there's a, we have to be careful, we have to distinguish between different Gospels giving different things that they saw from different perspectives, and John writing quite a bit later um, is intentionally, at least by, you know, what, what seems to be the stated goal, intentionally filling in gaps in the synoptics. Um, and, and bringing out more and more detailed things from the memory bank. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's, it's in contradiction or, or intention um, 
with the synoptics. It's, it's just different. It's just giving um, a different flavor of things. And um, so, and I, I think, I think also you mentioned, so you're saying that Acts is, uh, is clashing with the epistles. And that, again, that's, that's not something that I, I have time to unpack in detail, but um, I would push back on that and say, actually to the contrary, there's a, a, a good, strong, positive case to be made to show how Acts and the epistles incidentally uh, interlock with each other, especially once you get into the details of um, Paul's journeys, for example. Um, they, they sort of casually interlock in, in the way that historical accounts do. And for that matter, the, the gospels casually interlock with each other um, and not in ways that, that look smooth or planned, in, in sort of awkward ways or, or ways that would look like loose ends if it were being crafted to, to sell a narrative. So I can give an example or two of that if you like. Yeah, go for it. Okay, sure. So um, the, what, I, what I'm describing here, the, the interlocking with loose ends, um, has a kind of an archaic name of uh, an undesigned coincidence. Now, you might hear that and go, I, I don't get it. A coincidence is undesigned by definition. Well, it sort of goes back to the, the old-timey meaning of co coincidence um, as coincidence, uh, two things coinciding, interlocking. Um, so this is when there's there's some bit of information that's left out in one gospel, and then it's sort of casually or incidentally supplied in a different context in a different gospel. Um, so to just sort of quickly <clears throat> pull up my notes here. So here's here's just one example. So in, in Mark chapter six, um, feeding of the crowd, Jesus tells the people to sit down on the grass and it just mentions by the by that the grass is green. Okay, so it's kind of a gratuitous detail. If you go to John six, John six, John tells us that this feeding happened at the time of Passover. So if you think about it, I mean, there's not many times of year in Palestine area when the grass is green, right? Grass is usually brown. Um, and so Mark doesn't mention that this happened close to Passover. John doesn't mention the green grass, but that is like the perfect time of year for the grass to be green. So it just, it kind of comes together. Um, to give a second example, in Matthew chapter 14, um, there's a scene with King Herod uh, and he's speaking to his servants about his uneasiness over Jesus' popularity because he's just executed John the Baptist and he's getting kind of superstitious like, oh no, this isn't like John the Baptist's ghost or something like that, that would be really bad. Um, okay, so now if we were to be biased against Matthew from the get-go, we could say, okay, well, Matthew is inventing this nice little fictional conversation between Herod and his servants. But suppose we, we wanted to try to be objective. We wanted to try to give Matthew a fair shake as being potentially actual historical reportage. How might he know what Herod was saying to his servants if we didn't just want to assume outright, well, he just made it up? Well, if you flip over to Luke, um, Luke chapter eight, completely different context. Um, it's just a list of names of women who provided for Jesus and the disciples 
uh, with with food and such. And it, it's just like a list of names, so and so and so and so and so and so. And Joanna, the wife of Husa, Herod's household steward. So what does this mean? Well, it means that a close friend of Jesus and the disciples had family who was high up in the ranks of Herod's entourage. So knowledge of, of what was going on in that circle could easily have come through the grapevine, come filtered down to Jesus and his disciples. Um, so then suddenly it snaps together. And it's in such an incidental way, these two completely different contexts, that it's, it's not like Luke is cleverly filling in this missing gap in Matthew. The gap just is filled in. And, and there's like dozens and dozens and dozens of these. I couldn't possibly list them all. But those are just a couple of, of many examples of that kind of thing. And that's the kind of thing I see when I read history. I mean, it's not like um, a, a Christian fundamentalist hack, right? You know, uh, it's, it's, just, it's just good historical observation, good historical praxis when you're looking at how different accounts of the same events fit together. Yeah, no, it's, that's really interesting, really helpful. So thank you for that. Um, I'm, I'm trying to work out how to now link this back to the conversation we're having before about objective meaning and value. But oh, well, so, so okay, big, big, big picture, right? Uh, you were saying, how do I put God on the tree? You know, how, how do I know who, who this guy was, why it matters? How can I even trust the, you know, the records that we have, which I grew up thinking, oh, this, this tells you, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. Okay, well, um, how do I know the Bible tells me so? How do I know that the Bible even is what, what it claims to be? Um, so what I'm giving you, I, you know, I, I took out my magnifying glass for a moment there to study a blade of grass, a blade of green grass, right? But now backing up and giving you the, the broad sweep, I'm saying that every great jigsaw puzzle is made up of a bunch of small pieces and when they all fit together i think you see the face of christ interesting i like that that's a, that's a very helpful way of of uh, explaining it so thank you for that um i find i find these conversations really interesting and i think a big thing for me is to try and grasp what it is about something that has captured someone's imagination and i think you you can definitely see that obviously people were captured by christianity in you know shortly after very shortly after christ's death there was a group of people that genuinely believed this person had been raised from the dead and you could argue and some people would argue they've believed it you know kind of spiritually rather than physically but i think you know arguably there is a, a a good strong case to think that people did believe him him to be raised from the dead physically and i think that that also deserves a um a mention because that needs looking at and addressing and people can't just go he this person didn't rise from the dead because i don't think that could happen i think mm -hmm. you actually need to go why don't thank you think you, it could happen? <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> yes thank you for your input <laughs> <laughs> the sherlock gift <laughs> <laughs> good old scottish hume um anyway so um yeah I, I think it's important to actually go away and address these things and work out why and this is why this podcast is here is to work out why people believe the things they believe right and to and to get involved with them more um, 
so I mean you've kind of given us a really good sketch of how you how you take the Bible and how it snaps together for you and how it does create that almost mo- or that almost mosaic of Christ and 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 the, re- the reality of Him. Um, yeah, I think, and I want to stress that I mean, go on. I it's not just for me. Like I, I mean, I think I think anybody can see the puzzle. And this is the beauty of it. I think is that it's not just for me, um, but that I I think I think if you if you look into this, anybody can see this. Um, and I think it scales too. And there's there's a sort of a misimpression out there of um, like what apologetics is or what apologists do. You know, you could make one of those what so and so thinks I do, what so and so thinks I do, what I think I do. You know, it's, some people think that there's this idea among apologists that only really smart people uh, can understand all the evidence for Christianity. And so you just have to be smart enough to see how it all works and how it all fits together. Um, but I don't think that's true at all. I think it scales and I think it's, it can actually be made um, marvelously accessible for people at any level who are interested and curious and want to know more. Yeah. And this, and this fits really nicely into what we were chatting about offline as well, about kind of how you, how you understand Christianity and how you can work with it as, as a person, not just as a, as, as not just as US, but actually as, as a person, um, and I guess kind of what what I'd be really inter- interested to hear now, if if you're happy to, to to dive into this next section, is um essentially this this idea of what people need to believe to to actually be included to be classed as a Christian. And I kind of phrase it a little bit more. So uh, a big element that I find within this stuff is I I I could see how somebody could say that. I'm a Christian because I am seeking Christ. I'm looking for him and trying to work out where he is and trying to work out where where my mind is as well. Because I'm very much aware that there are truths and things about this world that I will never know. And there are things that are, are actually accessible that I can get behind. I'm also aware that our minds are very fragile and very moldable and shapeable. And it's very easy and possible for people to get themselves so caught up and so wound up that they are just unable to get past the knots that they've tied to actually begin to explore this stuff. So I guess it'd be really interested to kind of I'd be really interested to kind of hear your your take on that, Esther, and and kind of um, yeah, help us understand how we can begin to see to see Christianity through a lens that makes sense, and also kind of what it actually is to be a Christian. Because I know some people would say that I'm a apostate. Some people would say I'm you know a, a massive sinner and going to burn for all time. Some people would say that I am a Christian because I'm searching for Christ, and it, I I I would you know, call myself an agnostic most of the time because I just, I just don't know anymore. Um, but I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, I definitely wouldn't call you a Christian. I mean, it, like, in a sense, I would say that that's a form of um, respecting you almost. Like, I, I'm, I'm respecting you enough not to say that you are something that you, you say you're not, right? You know, um, so then it, what do I think it would take to actually be a Christian? Um, well, Yes, many different possible answers to this. And of course, if you ask Jordan Peterson, he'll give you a 45 minute answer. You'll sort of be left scratching your head wondering what exactly he thinks. But um, I think if I boiled it down, I would say to, to be a Christian, what one needs to believe to be a Christian is to believe that God came down from heaven in the person of Jesus Christ to redeem us from sin by his life his death, his resurrection, so that we could become like him and see him as he is. Now I could say that to to a number of people and a number of people would kind of give me a bit of a stare and go, 
cool. I don't know what any of that means, <laughs> right? And uh, this is the problem, I think. This is the problem with our post-Christian age, um, even more so, I think, in Britain than here in the States, and yet more so in Europe, perhaps, is that we lack a shared vocabulary uh, with which to discuss these things and with which to understand these things. Um, this is something my friend Paul Vanderclay has been trying to dig into in his channel and trying to come up with different ways of saying, I mean, really saying the same thing, but trying to bring it to into um, the, the current age. Um, and I, I think in a way, some of some of what Jordan Peterson as a figure has done, even though he himself will, will famously say, well, I, you know, I'm not a Christian in the traditional sense. I, I think he has kind of opened a, a gateway like a new way in for for people uh, to understand what it might begin to mean. So you know when he when he talks about like like he, he'll sometimes be, and I know I kind I kind of uh, started to ramble here, but what like what I just said when I talked about becoming like God, right? Or or when I I talked about sin or redemption. Um. I felt strongly when I watched Peterson's biblical series, like, wow, here's a guy who he's like less afraid to talk about uh, sin and evil and depravity than some supposedly Christian preachers, right? Um, and and he'll like point to people and say, you know, your heart is wicked. Like you, you are capable of, of evil things. Um, and so I think recognizing that is, an enormous first step on the way to to becoming a Christian. So, yes, when I when I put it that way, it might sound like a little propositional, a string of propositions, right? You know, it's just something you kind of mumble in a creed on Sunday, and then and you go off and, and do what you like. But Christianity, it has to be the the bringing together of the logos, right? The spoken affirmation, the spoken proposition with a changed life um, and a changed heart. And uh, and I think it goes back to, to what I said at the beginning of the show, that the do you want it to be true? Um, and I love the way that, that C.S. Lewis thinks through this, both in his fiction and in his nonfiction. Um, and he caused a little bit of controversy in, in the last battle because he, he has this character of Emmeth who is is not a Narnian, right? He's an outsider. Um, and he says that he's looking for Tash, who's who's the god of his tribe. But then at the end, he meets Aslan instead. And then he realizes, oh my goodness, Aslan is who I actually was looking for all this time, but I just didn't realize it. And now that I know, I want to worship him forever and ever. Um, and so... Now, some people might say, oh, no, C.S. Lewis is a universalist. C.S. Lewis proposes cheap grace, you know, like certain tribes of Christianity get, get nervous about that. But I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is that you, if, you are, if you are earnestly seeking the good, the true, and the beautiful, and if you are seeking the true source of those things, then you, you will ultimately be led to Christ, even if even if you haven't given the name of Christ to that which you are seeking. Um, 
And I think that what Augustine said is as true now as ever, that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. Yeah, that's um, that's really good. I think one of the, I'm trying to phrase it well, one of the things that I struggle with the most in, in this is, um, and I think a lot of people that have been Christian, left Christianity or found themselves having to leave Christianity will be in the same position is, they don't think, and I don't think that I wanted God to not be true and wanted to jump off a moving ship or something, but I definitely felt like I drowned when that ship carried on and I wasn't on it. And I I, I wish that this was true and I wish that I could see it and I'm really searching for it, but I, I struggle to understand how it fits together and I struggle to understand how it how it impacts my life and my world. And these the seem like... <laughs> These seem like fantastic ideas, but they just seem like ideas. They don't seem like realities. Like I, I, you know, have a really good friend who's just lost a child, and I can have the reality of when, when I'm allowed to, like going and, and and hugging them and saying, "I'm I'm so sorry that this has happened to you," and I can when we can both be sad that this child is gone, and we can both mourn this together. And people can go, "Well, the only reason you can be upset and sad is because God's you know given you the ability to have those emotions, and that the child only has meaning and value because of God, and all this sort of stuff." And that's fine; they can say what they want. But I can also see how believing in a God can give somebody the ability to get through and to cope a tragedy, to, to cope through a, a, a tragedy, tragedy. I can't even say the word like that. I'm just going to keep going. Um, and it's it, it's this that gets me is that I. I, I can see these great answers for the gospel and I can see these great answers for life and these and I can also see other answers for the gospels like people like Bart Ehrman and um, Paul Ogier on YouTube and, and these others that I'm sure will be debunked in, in so many ways but also have arguments that are very strong in, in my opinion about saying that how do we know these things to be true and yet I wish I wish it was and I, I also find it really complicated and strange that even our agnosticism and our atheism for me seems to have its roots especially in the way that we portray it today within christianity it, it seems to be coming like we just can't get away from it it seems to be in in everything we think and everything we are and everything we do the fact that i am able to stop and reflect upon the systems of like you call it oppression we can call it life whatever you want to call it the the, the, the systems we have built within the societies that we are in today um even those things are are christian and i find that really really hard to get my head around is the fact that even my doubts and my questioning and my ability to doubt and question sure there were people that were doubting and questioning before christianity and before judaism i'm fully aware of that but how we express it today in the west especially and the rights and the morals that we demand to be true in and of themselves are rooted within a christian framework and it's just it just don't seem to be able to get away from it i don't know if you've got any any reflections on that well you're sounding like tom holland i mean that's that's kind of his <laughs> I mean, that's like yeah. basically his, his whole thesis, you know, and I, and I had a little bit of interaction with him about this apropos of something I, I wrote at The Critic. Um, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, keep keep going, keep, keep thinking along those lines. But, I mean, to, to go back to what you were saying about um, suffering and, and how it's like, well, okay, sure, I could see, I could see why this would be a powerful coping mechanism um, that, that would help you to, to get through, but... Um, I can't see how it's anything but uh, at the moment. So I agree that it needs to be more than a coping mechanism. And so we're merely a coping mechanism, right? And so then if, if, it's, if, it, if it's just a coping mechanism, then we can't um, 
we can't in good conscience stake ourselves on it, even if, if that means, um, you know, crippling ourselves. But I, I don't think that we have that dilemma. You know, I, I, I think that I think that we're able to um, Forster, I think, used this phrase to to connect the prose of the passion. Um, that the that which we want to be true is is true, and I mean, I think Lewis is a wonderful uh, companion in this. That by I believe in Christ as I believe the Son has risen. Right, you, you, you know this quote not because I I see it, but because by it. I see everything else. Um, and so what's what's he saying? Well, I mean, he's he's not just saying, well, gee, it's awfully convenient if this is true, so I'm going to believe this. In many ways, it's not convenient. You know, in many ways, it's pretty uncomfortable. Uh, it makes it will make certain demands of you that um, that, that that are well demanding, you know, that they're they're unpleasant. But um, it's, it's the inference to the best explanation, I think. I think it best explains all the disparate pieces of evidence that we have on, in, in, all, different, in all different categories. Um, and I think, I, think, I think eventually what we have is, is a picture of Christ, the, the extraordinary individual who as God is is touched with our infirmities, and that's that's an important thing to that's an important thing to keep in mind of of Christ entering into suffering with us, right? Um, so that it's it's not just that he it's not just the sort of deistic God who set the world in motion and then just just sat back and didn't intervene, but a God who who raised the daughter. Of, of a, a, an important and powerful man from the dead who wept when his best friend Lazarus died before raising him from the dead, but he took the moment to stand outside the grave weeping first, right? Um, and so again, you could say, well, that's a very lovely story. That's that's really nice. That, that just, if it makes you feel better, I'm really happy for you and I'm glad that you have that, but I don't have that. And that's fair, you know, it's it, it's fair for you to not be at that place. But I would encourage you to take a fresh look. You know, I, I really, I, I would encourage you to to try it out, you, you, like, but but thoughtfully, you know, not just not just blindly in, in a, well, if I just kind of act like it's true long enough and see what happens. You did that already. You know, you were a pastor. You did the whole bit, right? Um, you're done with that now. So. I think I would say come back to it in a mature way, in a in a hard-headed way, but with an open heart, you know. Yeah, no I I I understand. How how would you how would you encourage somebody to do that? What what would, what would be the steps? So, um, I, there there are a few 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 resources that I found helpful. If you're, I mean, really, it depends on what angle you're trying to to come at it from. Um, 
I think, I mean, there's a number of things by Lewis that would be helpful if you're wrestling with uh, various emotional problems. Um, the kinds of things I think he handles really well in an intelligently speculative way, you know. Um, the Great Divorce was really helpful for me in forming my theology of hell and damnation, for example. So for people struggling with those concepts, I think that's that's an excellent resource. Um, I think for I think that for things like the problem of suffering or the problem of evil, I tend to find that fiction actually um, gets at those kinds of questions maybe maybe best of all. Um, and so, uh, you know, there's 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 a few novels I've I found that are really good there. Um, the Chosen is a Jewish novel. I love the work of Marilyn Robinson. She's a fantastic writer. Um, Lewis, of course, has, has written much wonderful fiction there. Uh, there's a science fiction novel called Mechanical for Leibowitz that kind of explores, it's, it would be a good novel to read after reading Sapiens um, <laughs> because it's a, it's about, it's a sort of a futuristic dystopian uh, reflection on what humanity is capable of and that, that line down the middle of every human heart, you know, um, but how life can spring up in the middle of that. But then I think if you're looking to approach things from a, from an academic view, an intellectual standpoint, if you're looking to uh, to see if the gospels hold up, if they can be trusted, there's a few different resources I recommend there. Um, I know you've had Peter S. Williams on the podcast. I would recommend trying to get Peter J. Williams on the podcast. Um, and he's got a, a beautiful small book called Can We Trust the Gospels? And that uh, is, a, is a, a great compendium of things that the authors get right, which I, I think puts them up close to the facts. It shows that they, they really knew their stuff. Um, the Design Coincidences that I was mentioning earlier, there's a great study of that in a book called Hidden in Plain View by Lydia McGrew. Um, so I'll, I'll kind of leave it there. I don't want to recommend like a, like a big giant tome that you're, you know, you're going to read like 25 pages and then get, get tired halfway through like, oh, and, you know, if I have to read this, then then never mind. But um, I think at the end, though, I want to be careful to just say, "Here, read ten books, and then you'll be a Christian." Right? It's not as simple as that. I I don't want to kind of fall into the worst stereotype of the Christian apologist uh, and seem to be saying that it's it's that simple. Um, I think I think simply reading the Gospels in itself and and just sort of considering the figure of Christ um, and how and how compelling he is and, and kind of asking yourself, you know, who could, have, who could have invented this figure? I mean, this is an extraordinary, unique figure um, in, in so many ways, combines so many different elements in his person. And, you know, certainly Lewis found even as an atheist, he had to admit it really, it had the ring of truth. And, and this was a man who had studied myth all his life. And, and he said, I came to the Gospels and I found something completely different, something which didn't have the ring of myth. It, it had the ring of, of history. So I would invite people to approach the Gospels in that open-minded way and, and consider what if, just what if this were, this were history? What if this were the true myth? Um, you know, the, the Logos made flesh, actualized particularized, you know, to kind of grab Peterson's terminology there. Yeah, no, that's, 
again really helpful with everything you're saying is really really helpful really good and really interesting i hope um, so i just kind of ramble and hope that some of it lands <laughs> <laughs> no i think so i mean i, I kind of guess that the kind of challenging last question I'll ask you is um, apart from kind of how people can find out about your work and stuff at the very end. But I guess it's that kind of when you when you look at someone like me, so you've you've engaged with a bit of my my I say work, it's not really work, my hobby, um, and you've you've engaged with many other people like me before who've gone through this sort of stuff and found themselves for some reason unable to believe anymore and have begun grappling and grasping at why that is the case and and what that means to them today. Um, I guess I, I am really struggling to see a way back from this. And I'm very happy to kind of go away and read books and, and engage with this. But part of me feels like if if I was able to know that my friend and, and his wife have lost their child, if they were able to feel God and know he was there and have like a, a physical almost example of Christ's love, I feel like they, they wouldn't there wouldn't be anywhere near as many people like me out there who were struggling with this because we wouldn't meet, need documents that were so old to be able to believe in stuff. And I guess what I'm trying to get at with this question is, when you kind of look at me in the eyes like we are doing now as we have this conversation, can you can you understand why people like me struggle to to get this, to struggle to hold it? And, and can you see how people can go to their graves never quite getting it? And d- does that make sense to, to you? Um, oh, yeah, yeah, it makes sense. And I, I mean, I think, um, you know, Mother Teresa, the, the great one of the great saints, right, um, was clinically depressed, you know, uh, and, and wrote that she felt that that God had abandoned her, but she just continued to sort of, you know, put one foot forward and 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 stake herself on on what she believed to be true. Um, so this is this is this is an enormously difficult question, and I don't again I don't pretend to have an answer to it. But I think I think this this is where faith comes in, and I'm I'm careful when I I'm careful when I use the word faith because I I don't think that we have to go beyond what what the evidence warrants. But those shifting moods that Lewis refers to can be very very powerful and can be strong and can just be like, okay, you know, even if I believed this, even if I actually thought this really happened. I'm feeling nothing at the moment. I don't have a feeling of love towards God. There's there's just the light switch isn't on in that sense. Um, and that's something Christians can experience too. I mean, it's not really, it's not just you atheists, you know. Um, a lot of Christians are clinically depressed. A lot of Christians lack a, an emotional connection with God. So then I think, I think in that moment, this may sound a little bit tough, but I think at that moment, you have to remember that if this is true, it's not all about me, right? Because truth is true regardless of me, outside of me, right? Um, and so then even at my lowest point, I have I have the choice to to continue to put my trust in it, you know, like like Mother Teresa was was choosing to, even when she felt nothing, when she didn't feel the, the presence of God. Um, and so I think, yeah, we're not we're not promised, we're not guaranteed um, that the Christian life will be all sunshine and roses. But what we are guaranteed is 
the empty tomb at the end of the path to, to Golgotha were guaranteed the life beyond the grave when maybe the most poignant verse in, in all of scripture and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, you know? Yeah. Be- beautifully said, Esther. Thank you so much. I think you've, you've, you've genuinely got one of the, um, one of the best minds out there at the moment, your way to, um, yeah. Oh, that's just, sweet. Thank you. No, no, I'm, I'm not just saying that. I think, you know, hearing you interact with people like um, Douglas Murray and, and, and many others and how you grapple with these things and, you know, speaking to Tom Holland and and you you are in, in the current times trying to grapple with these things and be relevant. And I think that's a, a really rare thing. I think a lot of people like to choose their their, their battles or, or pitch pitch their, their tent in a set area and you're you're willing to kind of go where where the journey leads and interact with this stuff. So yeah, no, I, I, I do mean that you've got one of the best minds out there on this stuff. So oh, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I, th- I think one smart thing I do is I avoid uh, debates. So like a, a lot of, a lot of people I find, especially like younger guys are like, yeah, I want to go out and debate Matt Dillahunty or whatever. I just like, Oh no, don't just no, like, please. The debate model is, is so, is so 2010, you know, um, <laughs> it's just like, I don't want to have a. I don't want to get get involved in pig wrestling, right? You know, I want to have a, a conversation. And I think that's a, that's where the really interesting stuff is happening now. Amen. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, and as promised, that 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 final question, it would just be so good for you to kind of share how people can find your your writing and and engage with you and and yeah, get 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 more into the sort of stuff you're talking about. Yeah, sure. Um, Although, you know, just just a warning, you may not like some of the, the things I write because I am sort of, I'm a little dangerous and I am all over the place and I, I'm not very good at concealing what I think about things. Um, but so my, my Twitter is Esther of Riley. Uh, and I mean, that's really sort of the best one-stop place to keep up with me because um, I've placed work at, at multiple different kinds of outlets, uh, both, both here and across the pond. But then I also have a blog at Pathos called Young Fogey, which... I unfortunately have only been sort of sporadically updating because I'll have long periods of writer's block and then they'll write me very sweet emails like, um, are, do, you, do you still want to blog or do you, do you need us to archive this? Or I'm like, no, 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 here, quick, I'll write a post. And I write a post and so then they allow me to stay on. So for now, you can find me at Pathos at Young Fogey. Um, and yeah, very, various other places, The Critic UK. Um, and I mean, I, I've placed I've placed work in a few other things without having bylines in there, so I don't want to exaggerate. It's not like I have a byline and kill out of the spectator. But um, if and when I do publish, I put something about it on my Twitter. That's where I'm primarily active. So follow me. Brilliant. I will have links to that in the description. So yeah, it's been it's been awesome chatting. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. hope you enjoyed this week's episode to leave any comments or thoughts you can head over to youtube and to follow us on social media or to see where else we are online hit the link in the description thank you to all our regular givers for making this dream a reality i'll catch you here at the same time next week enjoy the journey